So, Dharma friends, can you hear me? So, we are at a certain stage of our ceremony together. We're in the sacred circle in the sacred energetic field of practice. Practicing for ourselves and for all beings. checking to see our respect for the process. Holding the boundaries. Respect and care looks like this. How do we express care and mindfulness and compassion for the container? So we take interest in our practice and in how we are becoming moment to moment. The process of the mind coming into being and passing away and coming into being again and again and again, over and over, in this endless process we call life. For the Dharma to be part of our life, every moment of becoming of the mind, every moment the mind comes into being, it must be a moment that coexists with wisdom, mindfulness. Then the Dhamma is in our life. The Dhamma is our guide. The Dhamma is our coach. Wisdom and awareness is our guide. And we set an intention and willingness in a relaxed way to bring practice into every situation and environment. Because we need different skills in different environments. What skills do we need when we're alone to be mindful? To be mindful walking on our own, walking slowly or just at a normal pace.
to do that, it takes different skills than to be mindful when we're walking really slow in walking meditation. We learn new ways to be effectively mindful. In the dining hall, reaching for a door to open, aware of who's around us, what their needs are. We investigate what it's like to be alone and what it works to be mindful when we are alone as our own coach and as our own guide. We're doing little experiments, paying attention. What does it take, what skills are needed to be mindful when we're with other people? What do we need to do? We understand and learn from trying out these situations over and over again. And the muscle of our mindfulness and of skill is developed and strengthened. In this regard, we know both the object of the mind and the attitude of mind. What is the attitude of mind to this moment? What's the Vedana of the mind? How is that impacting the attitude of the mind? Does the mind have an agenda? What's the agenda? What is our project? What are our aims? We notice what's happening in the mind, the workings of the mind, and that's enough. That's all we need to see, that's enough. With satisampajanya, mindfulness and clear comprehension. When the mind is finding something interesting, it means that wisdom is already at work. When investigation happens, you are not just thinking about things, you are being aware. (coughs) With bare attention, 
Mindfulness is collecting data for an intuitive awareness. We can use words or questions to give some impetus and power to the observation, some sense of purpose. But there is already a strong sense of knowing and being in touch with your experience. We can ask questions, but not really expect an answer. And if there's a strong sense of interest and a close, bare attention, we might not even need questions. According to the Abhidhamma, there's only 42 things that could be in the mind at any time, or 52 things, 52 mental objects. One analogy is mindfulness is a lighthouse over an ocean. The ocean is awareness. And the mental objects are like fish that swim through it. Is that a happy fish? Is that an angry fish? Is that a peaceful fish? Can we see it come into the picture and go out of the picture? Can we notice it as it's arriving? Can we watch to see what happens to it? And then the attitude of mind. Is there kindness and acceptance? Happy curiosity. There's the object and the mind that is knowing. Let's sit with this.
One interesting fish to be aware of are actually the three manifestations of conceit. One is, this is mine, ownership. The second is, this is what I am, identity. And then this is myself, a view of our self abiding across time and space. These selves are influenced by views, views that we have grown up with. Views that build institutions that build countries. We're not thinking about that. We're just seeing how it literally colors our views of mine, I am, myself. What is the attitude of mind that holds that? Inherently empty phenomena rolling along.
taking interest in these minds as they become over and over again. Watching the measuring better than, worse than, same as, measuring, measuring, worse than them, better than her, same as him. And with wrong view, it's like this all the time. This is the way it will be forever. This should be pleasant. I'm making this happen. Wrong view.
in these last minutes of our sit, just checking into the attitude of the mind. How is the mind holding the objects? Is there a mind state, irritability, calm or tranquility, desire? Sadness.
Are there any questions about your practice? For Anishka and Vance? <laughs> yes? My mindfulness right now feels like I'm peeling band-aids and poking at scabs. Like it doesn't feel healing. It feels more like making the wounding more noticeable and wounded. I don't know if you have any <coughs> suggestions for that. So the question is that the mindfulness feels like it's poking at scabs and peeling off, kind of peeling off healing. It's just, it's actually blowing up, magnifying where there's sore spots. That's the practice. (laughs) That's actually excellent. Congratulations. Uh, you know, the question is, does your mindfulness, does opening to that suffering, uh, is that the condition for compassion to arise? That would, that would be the question that I ask. Because is the scab like a belief about yourself that is based on a distorted view or a belief about something that's going to last forever and that is always here? Is it something about the worthiness of the nature of an experience? Is it something about, I can't make this happen, I don't have control and I should? You know, it's seeing just, you know, those distorted views that we have that are really the cause of that second arrow we were talking about. Do you have any insights for her? I think a lot of the practice of uh, on a spiritual path of seeing more clearly includes also, unfortunately, like seeing our pain more clearly. You know, and like a lot of our life um, in the world, we try to not see some aspects of um, difficulty or pain you know, the wounds that we have, that we have accumulated or that are there. Um, And so both when we quiet down and enter into these periods, I think we get a chance to experience more beauty and joy of, you know, even in very small things that we otherwise glossed over, like what it feels like to have the sun on your skin or what the grass looks like or something. But then also in opening it up and becoming more sensitive and we start to notice those wounds that have been here, right, in our heart, even sometimes in our body that we have been ignoring all this time. Um, so, uh, yeah, I agree with Bonnie. I mean, in some ways you could look at this path of practice of um, seeing those uh, wounds and expanding our ability to be with them with a lot of kindness and uh, awareness and openness. And then little by little, um, or sometimes very suddenly, like that allows some healing to happen. But the first part of that often feels like, oh, like I'm, there's more pain that's emerging, or, you know, kind of the way you're describing about the scabs. But um, I would suggest that probably there are ways in which those were there, and like we're very busy and not allowing ourselves to feel things. So then sometimes the question comes, like, well, why is that good to feel things? You know, like I would rather just, you know, 
it was kind of better when I had my blinders on and I saw, like a little bit, you know, right? Um, and there's different kind of ups and downs in practice, like cycles of practice. And sometimes we get more the joy part and then we're like, this is great. I want to be in retreat forever. <laughs> like, I'm going to be a monk. I'm going to talk to Vance about ordaining and, you know. And then other times, um, you know, it really is going through these very difficult periods or having the light shed on these wounds and cuts um, that have been there and have accumulated. So, yeah, just to be very gentle and kind and do a lot of, like, metta for oneself, too, in this process. Um, I just wanted to say that, like, it's... We have the entirety of our sort of mind-body process in this, let's say, right? And then, usually in life, if there's pain, we don't want to see it, so we kind of turn away. And so then we basically sort of fold that over, right? And then... Maybe if there's some emotional pain, we don't want to feel that, so then we like put on our blinders and fold that over. And maybe there's some memories that come through that we don't want to feel, and so then we, we have to push that away, so we fold that over. Yeah. And then maybe we're uncomfortable having feelings that are sexual, so we push away, like, that's not spiritual, so we fold that over or something, you know. And then, you know, you get the picture, like, you get to live in this little tiny crunched up things so then the part of you that's like oh it was better when I didn't see this stuff is actually not you know because slowly as we start to learn to open to that you know you get all of this back and it's but it's everything it's like the good the bad and the ugly and then as we start to see that then we can um, see more clearly into just the nature of like how these things occur and how the suffering occurs and who we are in the first place so um, you're on you're on the path, my friend. Like it's 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 hard to see. And another thing we were talking about the other day is that like there's a way in which practice itself can be seen as um, becoming tuned into suffering on more and more refined levels. And sometimes I feel like it's like if you're walking and you had some like giant rocks in your shoes, and suddenly you're like, oh, giant rocks. And then you take out the rocks, and then you walk more, and then you notice like, oh, there's pebbles. And then you take out the pebbles, and then you walk more and then like there's sand and you know much more refined so like that there's like large things that happen to us that maybe we pay attention to but we missed a lot of smaller things and then as we settle in we feel that level and then as that gets cleared then we feel other levels and um, this is true even in noticing like our own behavior you know like what is the behavior that we do that is aligned with the truth that is kind to ourselves and others and Maybe we have let go of some like very egregious things, but there's kind of small ways in which we, smaller ways in which we talk to ourselves badly, maybe talk to other people badly. You know, then that starts to clear up as we feel the pain of that, and you know, little by little. Um, so yeah, this is why it takes a lot of courage, I think, this path. But uh, yeah, about you, paying attention to the wounds.
Well, um, so the question is about whether sometimes when we're looking for Vedana, we can actually manufacture Vedana. And that, I actually have seen this in this heart and mind. And what I tend to do is, when I have neutral feeling, when I can't tell whether something's pleasant or unpleasant, it's actually neutral, I actually uh, have greed for a stronger sensation of either pleasant or unpleasant. You know, it's like I start making up stories because somehow neutral is just boring, right? So that's what this mind-body process does. And, um, you know, uh, according to the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, there is Vedana for every experience. And if you're not feeling it, maybe it's just neutral Vedana. Maybe it's just not pleasant and not unpleasant. It is just neutral. And it might be interesting to explore neutral. There is a stage in the practice at certain levels of concentration that neutral... I know, and this is really contradictory, that neutral gets really blissful. How can that be? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I remember remember once there was, uh, you know, I'd been practicing for a little while, and uh, (laughs) I I was in Thailand, and um, you know, really quiet surroundings, really secluded, doing some concentration. And there were just these long periods of just these physical ecstasy, you know, and just the body was feeling, you know, these waves of pleasurable sensations. But it was at this, eventually I went to the teacher to tell him about it, and I realized, like, it's actually really agitating, you know, it's almost too much, you know, it's too much. And it started to sort of challenge this notion of trying to, you know, maximize, you know, these, you know, more intense physical or mental uh, sensations or experiences. And, you know, it was actually, there was actually a clear leaning more towards just kind of a, kind of more of a, a neutral, not, not pleasant, not unpleasant, but just more kind of quiet and balanced. And that was kind of a relief to realize that it, I think something, something broke in the mind, you know, in terms of, you know, even at the most intense level of pleasant, it doesn't deliver the goods. You know, there's the the mind is still a little bit. <laughs> you know, it's, it becomes agitated by that, and the way I think the the mind will naturally incline towards more peace. You know, even that is too much stimulation. You know, and is there something, you know, beyond the reach of the pleasant or the or the unpleasant that is you know uh, accessible that you know perhaps has. A, I think, more value on the path, you know, and I thought that was really fascinating and was kind of a, an interesting experience, but, yeah. yeah. So, so Did you hear what he said? It doesn't deliver the goods. I love that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's also interesting to notice the quality of the mind, you know, the mind state and how that impacts, because sometimes through practice, um, a lot of equanimity gets built up. So when there's greater concentration and greater balance of mind, um, you can have the similar experience, even of a mosquito biting you or something like that, and you're just not as reactive as you would be normally. You know? So then sometimes we wonder, like, oh, was that really unpleasant? It felt like kind of neutral, like it wasn't as big a deal. Um, but it's, usually it's just like the addition of equanimity. Uh, we can feel things that would otherwise feel um, unpleasant or that we would be reactive to. Um, and here's where, like, yeah, it can be unpleasant. You can know you wouldn't, like, give that as a gift to someone else uh, as an experience for their birthday or something, you know. Um, but also, like, there's a basic okayness. You know, like, the mind is not flipping out about it. 
conversely, there are some times when uh, there's a lot of aversion in the mind, and it's almost like the aversion glasses get put on, you know, and then everything seems unpleasant and is annoying, right? Like the sound of the birds and the sun and, you know, the person walking in front of you and what we're saying, everything, you know, (laughs) seems extremely unpleasant. And so usually then we posit that problem on the world as opposed to it's actually a quality of the mind. It's like lenses of the mind. So there's a lot of freedom from seeing that phenomenon uh, happen because then it's like, oh, maybe I don't actually have to change everyone and everything <laughs> you know, uh, to find uh, happiness. It's actually a lot easier to learn how to take off the glasses you know, than to, uh, to do that. So, so observe that. Like, it's very That's interesting good. to see the way the mind responds to things. And when there's equanimity pl- pl- present, it can be, uh, yeah, even if there's a variation, it can be quite okay. <laughs> so I had one quick thing a little while ago, now I have three quick things. <laughs> well, we only have uh, one. One is, is that practicing um, with uh, chronic pain mm-hmm. gives you a real appreciation for a neutral. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recommend that mm-hmm. for folks who want to understand how to really appreciate neutral. Um, mm-hmm. I really uh, like the uh, image of the lighthouse as a way of sort of scanning awareness and not getting stuck. So thank you for that. Um, and my question was, could you repeat the three conceits that are in the Actually, I have a whole conceit talk that I'm not going to be able to give, but you can listen to it on Dharma Seed. But <laughs> uh, there's actually, it's more complicated, but there's... Oh, no, uh, your mic is not on. Your mic oh, may be not, not on. on? Oh. I said, uh, I have this whole conceit talk that actually is really related to identities as people of color. So... Um, and it's on Dharma Seed if you want to listen to it. And uh, <laughs> Sharon Sue's going, what? <laughs> Bring it! <laughs> um, there's three conceits. There's uh, this is mine, uh, this I am, and this is myself. And it's interesting, you think, like, how are those different? But actually in the Buddhist psychology, they actually are different. And then there are... Um, uh, other th- uh, three dimensions of conceit, and that is better than, and it's measurement, right? I'm better than this person, uh, I'm worse than that person, or I'm the same as this group or that group. It's, you know, the group and the person is interchangeable, but it's the measurement of better than, worse than, and same as. And just very briefly, boy, how brilliant was the Buddha? 2,600 years ago, he said there's four categories of measurement that are endemic in the way that we live. And the first one is uh, jetamana, or birth conceit. Birth conceit, oh my gosh. I mean, you know, it brings me to the doctrine of discovery. Does anybody know what that is? Wow. The doctrine of discovery was the, what is it, 14th or 15th century papal edict that said, you know, white men from Europe could travel all around and if people wouldn't adopt Christianity, it was perfectly fine to either enslave them or kill them. And that was a manifestation, a right to them by their birth, you know. And, you know, there was a lot of other... uh, you know, variations of what birth mana is, and it's still alive and well. Birth mana is still alive and well. And it is empty. It is a vipalasa. It is a distortion of view 
that impacts how we perceive things, what we pay attention to, that impacts what thoughts that we have, which hardens into our view with those glasses, that view or those glasses that Anushka just put on, right? It's the view that we see. (laughs) So there's a Jetamana, then there's, oh, Panyamana. I have a ton of Panyamana. Uh, Panyamana is birth or knowledge, wisdom, and uh, uh, knowledge and wisdom conceit. So that's when if you're like a highly realized being and you have, have all these insights and the ego wants to own it all. Like, yeah, I'm the one that knows this and that. When the, when the actual um, uh, insight was, you don't really exist the way that th- you think you do. And, you know, as a college professor, oh my gosh, I am, f- I am, there's a lot of college professors in here. They're going, Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's this conceit of, oh, yeah, I know that. It really is interesting. And then worse than, there are people who have a conceit like, oh, man, those educated people, they are so uppity. I'm never going to be like that. I'm never going to be that smart. It's bad. You know, there's that. It's like taking pride in not knowing anything. And then taking pride in, you know, oh, they think they're so better or so worse. Everybody's the same. No affirmative action. <laughs> and then the third one is uh, Donna Mana. Oh my gosh, Donna Mana. People who have money and privilege, they don't even realize what privilege is, how they expect that, you know, teachers should be forever available to them. And, you know, that, that we should always be available and to answer every question. That's just one example of, you know, what privilege looks like. Or... Um, um, Donna Mana not having money, like, you know, I'm so unusual here because I'm the only one on scholarship, on, you know, or that's what it looks like on retreat sometimes, right? But in daily life, it's, you know, it manifests other ways. And then the final one, of course, is, uh, I don't know the poly word for it, do you know? It's uh, looks or appearance mana, better than, worse than, or the same as. How did he know this like 2,600 years ago? It's amazing to me. So those are the three types, and I do have a talk on Dharma Seed. Can you say something about people of color? People of color? Yeah, if you're saying you like Dharma talk about We don't have time, it's 3.15. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, for me, it is related to... It's related to Jatamana. It's like, you know, what... You know, what are the prevailing unconscious inherent bias? We know inherent bias is so real. I mean, we, could, we were just laughing about the things that have happened between us in the last two days of microaggressions. It's amazing. And the fact that we can actually laugh about it. Um, you know, those, there's inherent bias about who people of color are, who women are, who trans people are, who old people are who poor people are, who women are. There's a lot of inherent ideas that are embedded in our society that people grow up with that we don't even realize that we have. Those are the, the glasses that we see the world through that we don't even realize we're being slanted by, right? Like earlier, I'm so happy that I saw that, you know, I was universally, universalizing my ableist uh, subjectivity that I can walk fine so everybody can walk fine you know and I was just saying that that's 
must be how everybody is. So I totally erase and deny an, an existence of a whole group of people that I love and care about deeply. But in that moment, it, you know, something else was arising. And we don't have to take it personally. You know, you get a little bit of ouch, but hey, we can, we can open to that and be happy that we see it. Because when we put a frame around it, we decondition that. You know, we weaken the lenses of that view. It's wonderful to see that. We're happy to see it. Are you happy to see it? <laughs> it's great. It's not personal. It's not personal. So is that enough? <laughs> okay, thank you. And, okay, so internalized depression. Oh, my God. <laughs> I could cry right now. Mm. I'm feeling very tender. I, I feel like, oh, man, I'm in retreat too. Mm. And, right? It's all of us. Just letting go of that. And it's fine. It's, that's not personal. And we can heal. That's what the healing is. Just, yeah, it's like this. It feels like this. And, you know, I feel compassion for myself right now. It's like, oh, poor baby. <laughs> and for all of you. <laughs> and that feels good. That's the appropriate response. <laughs> Thank you, Vani. Yeah. In the connection, in the mana part is like, when we see these ideas arising in our own minds and hearts, um, to know that they're actually conditioned. Conditioned means like, you know, it's like a download. It's like a bad virus in the system. It's like a, a bad download we got <laughs> about uh, who we should think of ourselves as. Or, um, avija. Avija, ignorance, yeah. And, you know, that, we, that gets reinforced, you know, externally through people's ideas of who we are and their projections and so on. But then even when those people are no longer there, telling us that uh, we've already downloaded that virus, like it's in the system. Um, but it's impersonal. You know, there's a way in which uh, it's not personal to us. And being able to see through it can bring a lot of freedom, too. As well as by sowing the seeds of love um, and kindness that uh, basically can overgrow that garden, too. One thing it does for... One thing it does is when I feel the pain of it, it makes me so determined not to perpetrate that. You know, actually I had a... Gosh, I can't believe how sensitive I am. I'm working with right speech right now because you can all think about things people have said to you that have just cut to the bone. And doesn't that make you just never want to do that to anybody? You know, that's the, what it kicks up in me, like, wow, I so want to watch my speech, because that's just too painful. So, so uh, the agenda, we are going to have, uh, the managers are going to come in and tell us some really good stuff at 4.45, right? We're going to have a walking meditation right now.
And uh, actually, it's wonderful to practice with uh, Utejaniya style of walking meditation. And Vance has been telling me about how uh, Sayadaw actually does his instructions for walking. Could you share that, what, what you shared with me? Yeah, it's just something to, to play with, you know, and just try out uh, with the walking. Um, but, you know, you know, I think walking slower can be really useful and, you know, help collect the mind and, you know, build that stability as was spoken about earlier in the retreat. And, you know, if that's working, I'd encourage you just to continue. Um, something that, that Sayadaw stresses, though, is he's, he's big on kind of portability of retreat practice into daily life. And so... He encourages yogis just to walk at a very relaxed, natural pace. You know, a pace uh, you know that you might walk you know down the street uh, at you know or at home, and just see if you know you might be surprised that the awareness just can still be maintained even at these different paces of of, of walking, and just to maybe ask the question, you know, what is the mind? What is my knowing now, or what is being recognized now? And you can kind of open up the awareness a little bit, too, in the walking. But if you find that destabilizing or you're drifting off, um, it just seems like there's too much to attend to, perhaps. Uh, you can, you can uh, just come back to ground and the physical sensations. Um, so I just encourage you to play with that, you know, with these different paces of, of walking and um, just seeing what, what the mind is aware of or just kind of feeling a general sense of the body when moving at uh, kind of a slightly, a slightly faster pace. Um, and I found that to be really useful too, you know, not necessarily getting too attached to precision at times and just being kind of perfectly satisfied with just the general sense of the body or just kind of the mind, you know, just, just recognizing awareness is there. The mind is knowing aspects of what are here. Uh, it's doing that with a very light touch. It doesn't take much energy. And whatever, whatever, if the awareness is there, you know, let that be fine. Let that be good enough. You know, the precision doesn't necessarily need to always be there and it won't always be there. Um, so it's good to be able to find some ease, you know, in both places with slow moving and precision and kind of more of a general sense of, of uh, a general, more open awareness. So just something to, something to play with, you know, out there when you're walking around. So, yeah. Okay. So if I could about 35 minutes for walking, and then we'll come back for the uh, last sitting of the afternoon at 4. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.